get tired of that after the series <laughs> continues, but I want us to implant it in our minds because it's so important today. I want us to turn to uh, Judges chapter 3. As we look at these cycles and as we see how God uses uh, the judges to deliver them, uh, it's very interesting and it lets us know that, that God doesn't give up on us. And that's encouraging. Even though we may be in rebellion against him, he does everything he can to get our attention. It says, now these are the nations which the Lord left. And this is so very important. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan. So very important. He left them there for a reason. He goes on, he says, Only in order that the generations of the son of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formally. Now these nations are the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidians and the uh, Hevites and, uh, who lived in the Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as uh, Lebo Hamath. And they were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. And the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives, gave their own daughters to their sons, and served their gods. And the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishatham, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served, served Cushan Rishatham eight years. Now that's, we're going to stop there. We'll talk about the rest of the verses because there's a lot of verses to cover but we're going to be looking at chapter 3. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just want to thank you for this day, these people that have come out this afternoon, this evening. I want to thank you for their lives. And Lord, I just pray that you'll just speak to us as only you can. And we know that it's done by your grace and your grace alone. And so we just pray for that enablement here. And, and uh, just... Uh, we just ask for you to, to work in our lives in a mighty way. And we want this so that we can serve you more faithfully and honor you in all that we say and do. Help us, dear Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come here, we, we see a group of people that has gone from commitment to some compromise, and then an apathy, of course, and then conflict. Those who don't know the Lord at all. And this is why we understand why these people did what was right in their own eyes. Because it gradually, they got further and further away from the Lord until they finally did not know the Lord, the last group. Now, God doesn't give up on us, though. 
And as we see him dealing with this, especially the, the, uh, the generation of compromise and apathy, we see, first of all, God's strategy against this kind of living, this uh, situation that they uh, found themselves in. In other words, God's strategy against compromise, complacency, and apathy is very important. He, he did it for a reason. It's important to recognize that God did not leave his second generation to just waller in their guilt or their apathy. His uh, strategy for moving them forward is spelled out in the first couple of verses here. And the Lord allowed unconquered nations, in other words, these pockets of uh, resistance to remain there in the country for a reason and that was to test Israel by them only in order that the generations of the son of Israel might be taught war he says those who had not experienced it formally now was God interested uh, in giving Israel some kind of technical instruction here as far as in uh, military strategy I think not. I think God desired a group of people who would know how to trust him. That's what he wanted. Know how to trust him in battle and in all of life. You, you see, in early in Joshua's career, he had learned that the Lord is the banner of his people. And the one, he is the one who... Uh, leads them into battle and brings them victory if they rely upon him and trust in him. So victory does not come from man's courage or his wisdom or, or his skill. It comes from a faithful God. And this is what he was trying to teach them. That's the lesson that he wanted them to learn. Have you ever wondered, just think about it for a moment, have you ever wondered why God did not take away your sinful nature? Why he didn't take away your sinful nature when you trusted him with all your heart and with all your soul? Why is there so many areas of weakness that we experience in our life? Difficult problems and obstacles that we face day in and day out and that we try to overcome? Are you ever puzzled because, believe it or not, there's no perfect churches? <laughs> and if there was, then if you joined, there wouldn't be perfect, would it, anymore? So there's no perfect churches. But unresolved problems exist. Even in the most biblical and the most faithful fellowship. Have you ever wondered why? Well, at least part of the answer we can know of is found here in Judges 3, 2, where the Lord uses those difficulties to teach us how to wage spiritual war. He wants, us to, uh, he wants to shake us uh, out of our apathy and trust us uh, and teach us to trust him. 
And that's so very important because with compromise, eventually, when things are going good, if we're not careful, we begin to compromise and we develop that apathy in our life, don't we? We just develop a ho-hum type of attitude about following the Lord. And so he wants to shake us out of that. And that's why one of the reasons he's left all of that for us to continue to grow and depend upon him. Now, those times of failures and crisis come and should become a teaching point. They come as a teaching time and should become a teaching point as the Lord shows us how to make war, how to trust him in other words. And the implication of this strategy of God in our lives is clear. We cannot stand in our Christian experience alone. We can't do it on our own. There's no way. There are enemies to be faced. And there is ground to be gained. And if we try to stand still, we can be sure that the principalities and powers, be it may, of darkness against us, will succeed and we will become a person in the chair of compromise and so there are areas that in our life that need to be dealt with and there's ground to be won for our families in our families and in our churches and we must walk by faith we cannot stand still we've got to go forward realizing that there are battles out there there is an enemy satan and he will do everything he can to keep us from moving forward and being the person and the church that we need to be an old man was traveling on an ocean liner when a huge storm came up and it came up without any warning. And one woman that was on the uh, deck lost her balance and fell overboard. And the people just froze and they stood in horror watching her. And suddenly a man plunged himself into the waters, grabbed her and, and held her and held on to her and, and rescued her uh, and just swimming back and waiting for a rescue boat to come and get them. And when they pulled them out, everyone was astonished and embarrassed to discover that the hero was the oldest man on the boat, a man in his 80s. And that evening, they held a, pa a party to honor him. And when they called on him to make a speech, the old man rose slowly. And he looked around at the people who just stood there and watched the lady dr drowning. And he said, I'd like to know just one thing. And they were all embarrassed. They knew what was coming. And there was silence. He said, I want to know who pushed me in. Sometimes that's the only way to get started, isn't it? 
That's the only way to get moving. And the Lord will keep pushing us. He will keep pushing us out of our complacency. He doesn't give up on us. Out of that second chair syndrome into a fresh, vital experience of walking with the Lord Jesus. So the challenges of the second generation is that dynamic renewal. And I believe that we need that renewal today, that renewal of growth. The danger is apathy and spiritual uh, rigor mortis, if you will. It will set in, and we will become indifferent to the Lord, if not careful. The danger of apathy is that we are going in the wrong direction, and many times we don't even know it. So we need to ask ourselves, which way are we going? Which way are we as individuals are going in our Christian lives? Which way are we going as churches? We need to also look at the condition that brought this on. You know, in 1945, Charles Edward Stewart suddenly appeared in the Scottish Highlands. He was a tall, good-looking young man and an exciting, dynamic leader. And the heir of the Scottish kings and queens, Stuart had returned to Scotland to recapture the throne. George II, the British king, was arrogant. He was a cruel man. And he spoke only German, and the Scots hated him. The Highlands loved their prince, Charles, and committed themselves to follow him and dethrone the foreigner. So at first they were successful in battle, but suddenly at the Battle of Culloden, their dreams came to an abrupt end. The Scots were defeated or crushed by the English army. Charles escaped, but all of his soldiers were killed. The prince found his way back to France to plan and dream about the day that he would return and take his throne back. Sad thing is, he never did. You see, this is the kind of life he experienced. To meet Charles 20 years later was to confront a tragedy, they say. He had become a hopeless alcoholic. His body and health broken. His life had become a record of disgrace and shame. A long trail of broken marriages, discarded mistresses, and public scandals. The Scots, they say, may still sing about the Bonnie Prince Charlie, but to them very, very little of that Bonnie really sticks out. In Charles at the end of his life. But you know the sad thing about this. The life of Charles Stewart is a story of a great beginning in it. Followed by a tragic downward spiral. Into slavery of sin. And this life seemed to be one cycle of sin after 
another, taking him lower and lower. You see, sin unchecked in one's life takes us on that downward spiral. This is why believers not only need to daily go to the Lord and to ask Him to reveal things in their life and to confess those as God reveals them through their own personal study, but they also, and this is why I said it's difficult for me to think of believers that would say that they're in chair one when they are not even allowing themselves that community of fellowship and also that community of, uh, you know, uh, you know, being responsible to one another in the Lord that is needed for growth. That's why God allows a church to exist. It's for us to not only grow together and to reach others in Christ, but also to help us to be responsible to the Lord. That accountability, if you will. And you cannot be a, a person in the first chair, I don't believe, without that. You need that. Church is so very important. And this is the, the way that the judges were becoming. They were going in that cycle, that downward spiral. We see the, uh, the path that they took. By the time, you know, we finish judges, not only with these chairs, you'll be tired of looking at them, but we'll be thoroughly sick of the cycle of sin that they go in because it's repeated over and over again. In verses nine, 7 through 9, we see it in action for the first time. The people of Israel turned their backs on the living God and threw themselves into uh, the pagan sensual worship of the Canaanite gods. As a result, the loving God allowed them to come under the rule of a king named Cushan Rishatham. Much about him is a mystery. We know that Rishathom means double wickedness, which suggests that he was probably a cruel king, powerful cruel king. Uh, Mesopotamia was uh, probably where he was from. But other than that, we don't know a lot about him. He kept the Israelites in bondage for eight years, it says. Sin will lead us to that downward spiral. And just look at the Israelites. The Israelites did the unthinkable. They did not stop speaking of Yahweh or forget Him entirely. Rather, they borrowed the rites, the practices, and the idols of Canaanite paganism and grafted them onto their existing worship in new synchristic ways or religion. In other words, they brought in a multiple, vast different ways to worship. They started accepting all things. This is why it's so very important to realize what relativism does in our society today. Not everything is relative. You can't, you know, it's not the way you believe it is and the way I believe it is and the way somebody else believes it is. It's the way God believes. It's the way God teaches. It's the way God shares with us. It's his truth, and we need to find out 
the best way we can what it is. They were tolerant of that which God commanded them to destroy. Being tolerant is a dangerous thing. It moves you into the other chairs. And it moves you away from God. Now I'm not talking about tolerance in the sense of, okay, uh, that's the way you're going to live. That's fine. I'm talking about tolerance in the sense of the way the world looks at tolerance. They think that we're intolerant because we won't accept them. And we are fundamental in our beliefs and, and we're not uh, spiritual enough and, and Christian enough. Uh, because if we were, we would accept them. And so what does a lot of people do if they're not careful? Churches will begin to gradually accept that lie and accept that uh, teaching. They accepted what God called them to hate. And they com compromised when God called them to wholehearted obedience what brought this on the reason for it the reason was they lost fellowship with God by incomplete obedience we talked about it they didn't obey the Lord completely wholeheartedly they edited God's commands we do the same thing if we're not careful they did not consciously remind themselves of the grace of God we talked about that this morning we need to teach the others we need to be conscious of what God has done they forsook God and they forsook all that he had done for them and then third they rejected the word of God Israel began to look at life the way the Canaanites did instead of being controlled by the truth of the scripture they were controlled by the opinions and impulses of their sinful natures and what others said. This happens to us if we're not careful. So God's concern comes next for his people. I'm glad that with this cycle of rebellion, God did not give up on them, and he doesn't us either. The calling. You just look at the calling here. In verse 7, it says, and, and the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals of Ashtoreth. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan, Rishathan, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served him eight years. And when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Othaniel, the son of Canaan, or Canaan, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. What happened here? Well, God was concerned for his people, but I like what he did. He called three, we're looking at three judges in this passage today. One of them was Othaniel, the other one was Ehud, and the other one was uh, uh, Shamjur, Sam, Shamjur, <laughs> and so uh, I'll get it right in a minute. And so if you'll look as, as we go through these names you'll see that each one of them was different. And that's so very important. Many Christians become paralyzed in their beliefs 
because they feel like they don't fit in society, in the world, in the mode of a Christian. They have an image often that's very hazy, that's always very idealistic. In other words, uh, God can only use certain people. And then they'll start naming off these great heroes of old. And the conclusion is inevitable. I'm not what God requires, so the Lord cannot use me. Now, as with most problems, the real problem is that we are not guided by Scripture in our thinking. For when we turn to God's Word, we discover very delightful truths. God is not stuck on one pattern. Aren't you glad about that? Amen. And He does not have a heavenly mode until to which we must fit or else he would discard every one of us if we weren't like someone else the world produces conformity God produces individuality and he uses that individuality our God is a God of infinite variety he has wonderfully uniquely shaped each and every one of us. To prove this, we only need to look at these three judges mentioned here in this book. I mean, that sets it off for the rest of them. During this period, God used 11 men and one woman, each different in personality and ministry. Nowhere is the difference more obvious than in the first three judges we meet in Judges 3. Othenia. What about him? He first appears on the scriptural scene in Joshua 15, a story repeated also in Judges 1, 11 through 15. Caleb, the great man of faith, though 85 years old, had attacked the heart of the Canaanite power in uh, Kiriath Arba, or Hebron. And God had given him a great victory. But Judah had one other main center of Canaanite power. And uh, Judah had, uh, with this power, Kiriath Sephir, or Derby, or Debir. And Caleb issued a challenge there. He said, The one who attacks the, this one and captures it, I will give, even give him my daughter for a wife so in response to that challenge Othenio attacked the city and captured it now years later God reached out and chose this man to lead his people against Cushion let's just look at some of the characteristics of Othenio he was an extraordinary man in in many ways first he was a man of a solid background family background if you'll look in verse 13 he's called the son of Canaz Caleb's younger brother now that could mean a few different things and we won't go into the detail that that's not the important thing here either as Caleb's brother or his nephew he had the privilege of belonging to a family that was led by an outstanding believer Caleb with Joshua were, 
was one of the two greatest men of that generation. God witnesses to his life by saying he has followed the Lord fully in, in Numbers 14.24 and Deuteronomy 1.36. Othaniel had the privilege of seeing the principles of trust and obedience demonstrated in the life of his family. We do not know much about Othaniel's parents since they were in the... Uh, the crew that came out from Egypt, we do know that he, he was probably about 30 years younger than Caleb. And since his parents would have died when he was young, his half-brother would have become a father to him. And therefore, he could thank God for the gift of a godly family which had taught him to love and trust God. You know, what a great thing it is to have a good, solid Christian family. This is why I'm emphasizing that we as a church need to be that Christian family. To everyone and to all children, we need to be that. We need to reach out to them. We need to, as I told you, we need to let them see that Christian life in us and not only tell the stories, give illustrations in our personal life how God is working and show them how God can work and is working in their life. I read this story about a young pastor who was dying of cancer. As he was lying on his deathbed, his, his father and his uncle came in, both of them pastors. And they visited for a while, and then the young man asked his uncle to leave. Just for a few moments. He said, would you mind if I talk to my dad alone? He said, certainly not. And so he left. And the father came over to him and he said I want to tell you what David said to me while you had left to his uncle but before that he said you know this is, this is what happened he said he, he asked his dad he said can I put my arms around you dad and his dad came over and stooped over him he says now dad would you put your arms around me? And he said, I could hardly control my emotions at that time. But I put my arms around him. And then with his arms around him, he said, Dad, this is how it's so, why it's so important for Christians, us to be family to one another. And the family to be family to their, their families. He says, Dad, I just want you to know that the greatest gift God ever gave me outside of salvation itself was the gift of a mother and a father who loved God and taught me to love him too. Wow. That's what we're talking about here. So that it will continue to be in chair one. And if it's moved out to chair two or chair three, to witness to them in chair three or to help them in chair two to move back to chair one. It's so very important. But I want to say this. A God, just because we have a godly family background, and though it's a privilege, does not equip the person to be used by God. Othenio was a, 
a man with some distinguished personal characteristics that stand out that we need to look at. He was a man of proven ability. In other words, he had gone into battle and won victory. He knew what it meant. He was there on the line. We need to be people who are on the line fighting. Mothers and fathers, grandparents, friends, church family. He was a man of demonstrated courage. In other words, he, was, uh, he knew that there was a powerful enemy out there, but it, he had courage enough to face him. And so in turn, he knew just like when he faced kiriath Sephir, the stronghold of giants, he knew that by trusting God, he could face this, this enemy also, which led to the last thing, and that was he was a man of personal faith. It has to be personal faith. You, you remember that even though the second generation moved out and third, God did not blame with this generation or this generation the other generation. He didn't blame them. He said, you have sinned. You have done this. So it has to be a personal faith. And Othenia was a man of quality, the kind of person who stands out in a crowd. In other words, he, uh, you know, he was a man that people knew that walked with the Lord. But those outstanding characteristics do not plain, uh, explain why God used Othenia. The key to his character is found in the statement that says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He did not derive his strength from his own godly family or from his godly inheritance or any background, but from the enablement of God. It's got to be that personal relationship when it, it comes to the bare facts. We can do all we can and we can help the other generation to do you know, to understand this and be all that they need to be, but they've got to have that personal walk, and we can help them come along to see how God is working in our life and how God wants to work in their life and is working in their life by pointing out different things. But understanding that reason that God is using them is because of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not because of them in any way. The Holy Spirit worked through Othenia. And God's people had relief for 40 years, it says. A man may change his generation as Othenia did. But he cannot guarantee the spirituality of the next generation. After 40 years, the cycle of sin revolved again. And this time God raised up a judge of a very different character. If you'll read with me, he says, Now, verse 12, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon, Amnon, and Amalek. And he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. And the sons of Israel served Eglon the king of Moab, 18 years. And when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer 
deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, we won't read all of this through verse 30, but you know the story. This time, the servitude of the people was under the hands of Eglon, the king of Moab. Their condition, they were in bondage, brought about directly by God because of their disobedience to God. And these were not just movements and accidents of history. They were the hand of God in judgment upon the sin of his people, but not to make them sin worse and not because he hated them and he, he was angry with them in the sense that he said, I just, you know, I hope you go through all kind of cruel things. No, he, he brought them under this for repentance. He wanted them to see their sin. And this king was apparently a very coarse man. He was a very big man, it seems like, belly hanging over. Length the Ammonites and the uh, Amalekites with him and they swept through Transjordan where the tribes of Reuben and Gaz and the half tribe of Manasseh were and they crossed the Jordan and established their capital at Jericho and they began to spread their influence through the area areas of Benjamin and Ephraim and with a force of about 10,000 men they crushed the Israelites for 18 years so finally in desperation the Israelites once again called to the Lord. And the Lord raised up a deliverer, a man named Ehud. Now, look at the characteristics. He was a prominent man. He was in charge of taking the tribute up to uh, the king, the Eglon. Uh, this was a form of taxation, and the person who brought it to him was normally a, a man of prominence who could be trusted. He was a man also with a limitation, though. At first glance, it doesn't seem very significant, but he was left-handed, and that means uh, the wording there in the text meant hindered at the right hand. Now, how that was, the right hand, most right-handers were the, uh, the ones that were thought of as being the strong people, the uh, the, the ones in charge and all this, everything right-handed, everything right-sided and all of this. And so uh, as far as uh, limitations, they don't really know if he had a limitation, or, but they do know that he was left-handed. And we, we see that uh, with this that God can use anybody, whether they have limitations or not, right? I mean, all of us have limitations. And that is what happened with Ehud. And what others thought was a defect, God can turn into something, a tool to be used by God. And he did that with him because he used his what? His left hand to bring that blade out to the point where he stabbed it into the uh, overhanging belly there and uh, it disappeared in there so far that uh, uh, you couldn't even see it. And he killed him. And then he left. He was a very courageous man. Apparently it was impossible for Ehud to arouse an army to join him. So um, uh, alone he risked his own life. And he went back and, and he dealt with this, uh, this king. And that was an uh, you know, act of, uh, of uh, undeniable uh, bravery here. 
And then he was a careful organized man. Ehud had thought through carefully exactly what he was going to do evidently. But not only that, he was a spiritually committed man. It was God who raised him up. In verse 28, it shows him he was very conscious that the battle was the Lord's. The Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So he recognized what Othenio had recognized. It was not his cleverness, his competence, which produced a victory, but the Lord. Now we come to the last one, Shamgar. Get that right this time. And after him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines, or Philistines, with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Now he lived at a time when the Philistines were beginning to exert their power. And later on, they became a major force. But at this time, they were beginning to exert their power. And so uh, God raised him up as judge. And he was not an Othenial. He was not an Ehud. He was a man used by God to strike down the Philistines or Philistines. First, he was a man with a dysfunctional family, you might say, or confused family, whatever, background. He was not a, it, Shamgar is not a Hebrew name. It was a Canaanite name. And his father's name was Anath. And it's the name of the Canaanite god of sex and war. So his family had completely gone over into paganism. And it had surrounded his, uh, his family and them. But they certainly did not, so in this, they, you know, they were met, mixed up in paganism, so they didn't prepare him to be a judge and a deliverer of God's people. Second of all, he was a, a uh, you know, he was a peasant. We know that from his weapon, that ox gold, or, uh, gourd, uh, it was a long wooden stick tipped with metal at the one end. And it was used to, uh, uh, to keep the oxen plowing together in the fields. So evidently he, he was a peasant of the fields. But third, he was a man of courage. Only a few brave people, when armed with this instrument, would take on 600 Philistines. And in this context, his courage was born in the faith of God. That's where it was founded now what can we learn from these well first of all this story to begin with God uses trials and temptations in our life for a purpose not to keep us from progressing in the Lord not to keep us down not to keep us discouraged but to strengthen us Satan wants to keep us down Satan wants to defeat us but not God Second of all, God never gives up on us. He hasn't given up on Israel. He doesn't give up on Israel. The pattern, the cycle continues, and it gets worse and worse as it goes on. He does not give up on. God loves us with an everlasting love. And then God, third of all, is the source of our strength. 
they recognize, these leaders, these judges recognize that this victory, these victories came from God, not from some cleverness that they come up with or some plan that they devised themselves. It was God leading them. And then forth some characteristics of the men that God uses. He, you know, God uses completely different kinds of men. Every one of them were different. You'll look at Othenio and say, well, you know, God can use this proven man of ability and all this. But then you go on down in Ehud. You know, you, you, you say, well, he has limitations, but, but I can see where God might could, you know, he could use him too. But Shamgar, paganized family, probably a peasant, God worked through him even. And he can work through us, you and I. Second of all, God uses people who draw their strength from him, as we've already talked about. They knew that their talents and their gifts came from God. And for them to be used properly, they had to depend upon God. And so there's a, you know, there's always that trusting in the Lord and realizing that he is in, in control and that we can do all things through Christ. Who strengthens us? Not us, ourselves. And then third, God uses people who step out in faith and trust him. Each one of them stepped out in faith. We've got to be able to step out in faith. They had courage to take a risk. We've got to be willing to take risks. They were bold enough to take God at his word. We've got to be bold enough to take God at his word. Whoever we are, God has a place for us. Our limitations, they're not a problem for God. They're an opportunity for him to work through. He can deal with them. We're to accept ourselves, but to accept ourselves, we must see our limitations. And that to be the person that we need to be is a person who depends upon God and who trusts God. And that's where our true being, our true acceptance comes in. It's not thinking about who we are, but thinking about who God is. And then we're to step out in faith. Seeing him as a unique individual and working through this powerful individual because he has the authority to get the job done. And that's the way God is. He has the power and the authority to do what he wants to do and desires to do. And guess what? He uses people like you and I. Let's bow our heads and pray.